Welcome to the Rochester Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We believe that there is no message more life-changing and more relevant than the gospel. It is our earnest prayer that you will be enriched as a disciple and that you will hear the good news today. From Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on them that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Heavenly Father, as we behold the glory of your Son, Jesus, we are humbled, we are in awe, we are reverent, we are amazed. God, I pray that today we may lay claim to your victory. God, you have won. Help us to be yours and to join you in this victory celebration. Speak, Father, for your children are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, Revelation chapter 19. This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is the moment. The victory of God over the forces of evil. John's been telling us this would happen soon for the entire book. And we worked our, I'm proud of you. You worked your way through all three sets of sevens to get to this point. You you stayed with it even when the dragon came out. And even when he brought out the beasts. All of that. And now, finally, the final battle is here. So we're going to dig right into it. All right, we just read uh, verses 11 through 16 of chapter 19 where we meet the rider on the white horse here. And the rider on the white horse is called Faithful and True. And with justice or righteousness you may have, he judges and wages war. Christ enters into the drama as a mounted warrior king leading heaven's armies into battle while the beast and the kings of the earth gather for their final stand against him. If you look at verse 19, it says, I saw the beast and the kings of earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Okay, so earth is gathering up. The powers on earth are gathering up their ability to wage war against Christ. And when you see him, he's just glorious. But he's not, he may not look the way you expected. He's got these piercing, shining eyes. He's got crowns on top of crowns. He's 
He's tatted up. All right, he's got tattoos on him. He is wearing a robe that's dipped in blood and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. He, it says he treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Now this is, I'll be honest, this is already difficult for our minds to process. And here's why. Because in the Western world, in our world, most of us have two ways of viewing Jesus. All right, when I say Jesus, what comes to people's minds is generally one of two things. All right, the first one is beautiful baby Jesus. All right, that when I say Jesus, people think, oh, yes, baby Jesus. I like baby Jesus. Somehow he was just born and yet he's in the manger, not crying. That's a song, not the Bible. Settle down. All right, but we love the baby Jesus. The second thing we see when I say Jesus is we see um, he's got feathered hair. He's a little lighter complected than you would expect. And, and he's nice to everyone. He's always smiling. Friend Jesus, right? Grown-up friend Jesus that, that isn't, isn't a kind of, he's not the, he's not a mean Jesus. He's nice. Well, this, this fellow in Revelation 19, he doesn't really look like either of those. And, and, and I want you to know we may need this Jesus now more than ever. The slaughtered lamb <clears throat> has transformed into an eschatological warrior king who is going to make war in righteousness. You see, Jesus is tougher than we give him credit for these days. During his ministry, Jesus faced demons daily. Did you catch that? During his ministry, Jesus came face to face, toe to toe with demons regularly, and not a one of them ever threatened him. Not a one of them ever challenged him. As a matter of fact, what they do is they tremble in fear and shaking. They ask him, please don't destroy us like we know you can. When Jesus goes into the temple and he sees that they've turned his father's house of prayer into a, 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 a flea market... He starts turning over tables. He's kicking the animals out. He's kicking the people out. He's, he's yelling, and there's not a single person in that place who steps up and says, I'll stop this. Now, I know we're used to in our paintings little, weak, sickly Jesus who looks like you could knock him over with just a breath. But I think it's interesting that when people talked about Jesus, they said, you know, he's a glutton. Time out. Skinny, scrawny Jesus? What if Jesus isn't that skinny and scrawny? What if he's a big enough guy to go into the temple and make people worried? He might come over here. People are like, you ought to stop him. They're like, I'm going to mind my own business is what I'm going to do when that guy's around. 
And Jesus goes to war against the powers of this world and against the beast. And I know that it's tough to wrap our minds around these two images, the slaughtered lamb and the warrior king. But they're not as incongruous as they seem. Okay, they actually, throughout Revelation, John has set side by side the language of battle and the language of faithful witness. Now remember to be a faithful witness, that's what the slaughtered lamb was. The faithful witness is the one that gives their life for the truth. And so to set beside one another the conquering king, the language of battle, and the language of faithful witness. That's what John has done the whole time. As a matter of fact, in this picture, the sword with which the rider strikes down the nations comes out of his mouth. Okay, the connection of the sword and the mouth suggests that the means by which Christ makes war and executes judgment is through witness. It's an association that's strengthened by the designation of the writer as the Word of God. In the letters to the seven churches that begun this, this apocalypse, the means by which the churches conquer is through faithful witness modeled after Christ. And in the account of the war in heaven against the ancient serpent, the devil, in chapter 12, victory is achieved by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. In fact, John just told them in verse 10, right above where we started our reading, it's the, he, he, he says... This, this angel has revealed God, has revealed Christ to John, and John falls down to worship the angel, and he says, don't, uh, he says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. That the victory is found in the words of that bear testimony and bear faithful witness to Jesus. You see, our weapon in this battle is our word and our testimony. We don't wage war the way that the world does. Our weapon is our word and our testimony. We bear witness. And this is how we fight our battles against the forces of darkness with the words of our praise and our worship. This is how I fight my battles. We sing it. It's, it's the words that we bear, that testimony. But here's the, here's, the, here's the deal. If we're not sharing the good news... If we're not telling people why we believe, if we're not offering up our praise in public places, if we're not praying for others, if we're not bearing faithful witness to our king, then we shouldn't be surprised if we don't see ourselves winning right now. I'll be honest with you. I hear a lot of people get real worked up about the enemies of God and they say we just oh boy we got to do everything we can do to stop the enemies of God and I'm, I'm with them and then they say and, we, and I'll tell you who they are and then they say whatever the political party is that's other than them and here's the deal I hear both sides do it 
The, the, the biggest enemy we got to our victory and our being a part of it, it is, it is not one of the political parties and their radical agendas, both of which are demonic. I think it's the stuff that distracts us from living our calling as faithful witnesses. I don't think it's the radical politics that are going to kill us, although I don't think they're safe. I think they're demonic. I think, though, for most of us in our daily lives, the things, are, are the, the things that are going to kill us are the distractions. This is where I'm going to step on people's toes. Things like our weekend trips. Things like our kids' sports teams. Things like a lackadaisical attitude towards the table of God and toward gathering with the saints. We let life distract us so much that we stop bearing witness. We stop sharing the testimony of the faithful. We don't even surround ourselves with one another. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know is that we're not really experiencing victory. And we say, God, where'd you go? The biggest, <laughs> G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, the problem is not that Christianity was, found, was tried and found wanting. The problem is that Christianity was tried and found difficult. And people quit trying. Did you notice that the righteous saints come along with the rider? And they're dressed in fine white linen. I can tell you that is not the uniform for battle. Fine white linen. And they're wearing white horses, which is not usually what you ride into battle. You, you, you ride the white horse in the parade afterwards. So, so they're dressed all in white, which is not the right uniform. Not the right uniform. Angelo, I'm glad you're here. I'm wearing purple for you today, bud. And for those of you that don't know about Angelo, Angelo is a die-hard LSU Tigers fan. And his LSU Tigers whooped my Alabama Crimson Tide last night. And we didn't have any bet or anything, but I wore purple for you, buddy. All right? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, can you imagine if a football team showed up and didn't have pads on? You might say, that team's not really ready for this game. The, the faithful of God, the army of God marches in and what are they wearing? They're not wearing armor. Of all things, they're dressed like priests. Fine white linen, we've heard that before. That's the garment of priests. You see, they're here to do a different kind of war. War that involves continually being in the presence of God and bearing testimony and faithful witness as they mediate between God and the world. This is the role of a priest. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, it says to the people of God, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that our role in God's service, our role as his disciples, our role as God's army is to be his priests. 
And the priest had the job of being the go-between between God and the person that was trying to worship God. So that if Matt had come in and Matt said, I need to make an offering, Matt would bring the offering to the priest. The priest would then make the offering at the altar and God would then be reconciled with Matt. The priest is the go-between, the mediator. That's our role. That's what the people of God are called to do, is to go between God and the world so that they can be reconciled. We have a purpose. And if we're not speaking his words, if we're not sharing the faith, if you're not evangelizing, if you're not teaching someone or telling someone the good news that's so good, it's a shame anyone should have to live without it. If you're not sharing it, you're not doing your job. A Christian should never be bored. We've got so much good to do. And, 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 and Jesus' robe, I don't know if you caught it, but it's been dipped in blood. Right? Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. Verse 13. I need you to know this now. That's his blood. That's his blood. Adam, how do you know? How do I know? They haven't fought the battle yet. He's not fought the battle yet. That blood's not anyone else's. That blood's his. That he poured out for every single one of those people that are in rebellion against him. That even as the warrior, the slaughtered lamb, is there as an invitation. God has promised to set right the injustice and deception in the world. And the agents of these things, injustice and deception, will face the righteous judgment of God. And through his life and death, the Lamb has unmasked and exposed all of the deceptions of this world and all of the injustices that are done so that they can be seen for what they are. The slaughtered Lamb, therefore, is the warrior king. And it is his faithful witness unto death that makes him worthy to be called the king of kings. And God doesn't want to fight creation or humanity. He's not itching for this fight. However, the kingdom of this world has waged war against the God of heaven, and so it's war they're going to get. So you look at verses 17 and following. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God. That is a terrifying dinner invitation. <laughs> so that you may eat the flesh of the king's generals and the mighty, of horses and their riders, the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast, verse 19, man, the kings of the earth gathered to wage war. We already saw in, in chapter 16 that they're gathering at this place called uh, Har Megiddo or Armageddon. Okay, it's, 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 a, it's a place that's kind of known for fights. 
All right, but it's, it's, it's an area off near, near Jerusalem, Armageddon. And so they've gathered at Armageddon. And this is not a literal gathering, but this is, it's so important that you realize that all of humanity, John really wants you to see that all of human wickedness has teamed up so that they can all take on God. And it's kind of ironic that the book of Revelation spends so much time describing how these kings seek to bring all the power of human wickedness against God. And the way the story is told, with all of the build and all of the pomp and all of the drama and all of the rising tension, all to get to this letdown of a battle scene where they're defeated in two verses. Verse 20, the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So there go the leaders. Verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Whew. Well, Jesus defeats the beast and false prophet, sentenced to the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the final destination of everything that aligns itself against God. Then those who stood with the beast killed by the sword in Jesus' mouth, the word of God. This is, this is not really a fight. Like this is, it's kind of like watching me try to lift this building off of the ground. That I could work out, I could lift for, man, I could pump iron for, give me 10 years of lifting and preparation. And it's going to be an utterly disappointing failure. Because I'm simply overmatched. All of the sinfulness of humanity is nothing compared to the power of God. And somehow I still run into people who look at their own lives and think that somehow they've done something so bad. They've done so much that there's no way that God's grace could actually forgive them. As if somehow our wickedness could be stronger than God's mercy. Our God is too strong for that. Let me preach the gospel to you. The sin of Adam is not more efficacious than the sacrifice of Christ. There is a victory that God is winning. And if you read into chapter 20, which we're going to study more in depth next week, having defeated the beast and the false prophet, the Lord then turns to fight the real enemy, the dragon. We've been talking about beasts for a while. What's the dragon been up to? Let me help you. The dragon doesn't want any part of this fight either. That's why you've been trying to send other people to do his dirty work for him. The demons know who Jesus is and they shudder. Now I'll admit this, the defeat of the dragon is a little weird. We'll talk about it next week, Lord willing. But the point isn't when God's going to do that. The point isn't how God's going to do it. The point isn't even what God is doing. The point of the text is that God will do it. And in the final victory, death and Hades join the beast and the false prophet and the dragon in the lake of fire. And everything that has stood in opposition to God and God's plan for creation has been destroyed. God wins. 
Yeah, amen. We like that part. That part's great. We should like that part. There's one more thing I want to point out about this text, though. And that's the setting for this last vision. I know, I know. He sees heaven open. All right? I get it. I get that this war is happening in heaven. I get it. But where is John again? If you remember when Babylon was defeated and overthrown, the angel said to him, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That this last vision is shared at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That, that, that they gather at the table of the Lord because our God is a God of tables. If you look at Jesus, Jesus has a ministry built on table fellowship. Jesus opens his table to everyone so that they can share in his presence and his blessing and his blessing and his victory over the sinful structures of the world that held them down. And it was at this table that they came to realize something. They needed him in a way they didn't even realize when they first sat down. They needed him. We celebrate the victory of God every week when we commune together. When we gather around this table. And we remind ourselves of a simple truth. We need Him. Because God knows this, that what we do consistently and together is what forms us. What we do consistently and together is what forms us. So we gather every week around this table and we consistently take these emblems so that we can be transformed together more and more into the likeness of Christ. So we have these feasts. God has all kinds of feasts if you read through the Bible. But here's the deal. We're not really good at feasting. Oh, I'm good at overeating. But I'm not good at feasting. See, what I'm good at is fast and efficient. What I'm good at is pulling up to the window and just throwing chicken nuggets into the back. <laughs> because I'm saying, Cooper, we got to get you to the next thing you're at. I got to get to my thing. And so I just need, just cram this burger down your face so that we can. We're not feasting. I'm just throwing food in back as efficiently and as quickly as I can. That's not sitting at the table in the presence of anything, feasts aren't made for efficiency or speed. When God delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus, they first had to commemorate the night around a table, eating a dinner that would prepare them. We call it the Passover. And he has them sit there and eat this lamb with, with, with bitter herbs. And there's a lot of bitter herbs. And it's not because they're power foods. I love, I love my kale group. <clears throat> I love y'all. He's not going with Swiss chard because it's a power food. He has them eating this meal to remind them of what? You need me. 
You need me. Psalm 23, which we studied this year, God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And while we're there, we're reminded of what? We need him. Can you go ahead and bring your team up? And here, at the end of all things, when death and Hades and the dragon and the beast and the false prophet are defeated forever, we hear the story at the table of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And having defeated his foes, the lamb is ready to celebrate with his bride. You know why? Because we need him. We need him. Revelation 19 puts side by side this amazing image that works two ways. If you were paying attention... For some, when Christ returns, Christ's return looks like a wedding. And there's a feast. And for others, when Christ returns, it looks like a bloodbath, an utter defeat. I can tell you which one of these God wants for you. I can tell you which one God wants for you. You are loved and you are chosen by God. The question that you have is, will you say to God, I love you and I choose you? We sincerely thank you for listening and pray that you were blessed today. To learn more about Rochester Church of Christ, to support our ministry, or to contact us with any prayer needs you may have, head over to www.rochestercoc.org. Remember, You are loved and chosen.